Bellevue Literary Review is a unique literary magazine that examines human existence through the prism of health and healing, illness and disease. Each issue is filled with high-quality, easily accessible poetry, short stories, and essays that appeal to a wide audience of readers. The BLR is published twice a year by the Department of Medicine at NYU. In this episode of the ASN Kidney News Podcast, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with BLR editors Martin Blazer, MD, and Jerome Lowenstein, MD, about the intersection of medicine and literature. Dr. Lowenstein, recently one of your fellow nephrologists told me that he only has time to read work-related materials such as medical journals. How would you respond to him? Well, first, I don't think it's limited to nephrologists. It's a complaint that I hear all the time. And I think having no time is really a matter of perception. Uh, Everyone has some time. And what I would suggest to anyone who made that statement to me is that they should set aside a short amount of time perhaps as little as 15 minutes, and use that 15 minutes to do what they'd like to do, not what they have to do, be it reading poetry or literature or listening to music, but to to make it a dedicated, set-aside time. I think physicians in general, I think, feel very much a need to be in control, control of their time. And so if they set aside some time and they say, this is for something else, then that will fit into their lifestyle. Uh, And I don't think it will deprive them of very valuable time for learning the latest thing in in nephrology. I think it's a matter of deciding that these things are important, too. At least that's the way I've constructed my life. Dr. Blazer, how have you constructed your life? (laughs) Poorly. Uh, But I think what Jerry is pointing out is the need to have balance in life. One can never know all of medicine or even nearly all of medicine. The goal is to know enough of medicine so that you can be uh, happy and responsible. And the ancient philosopher said, physician, heal thyself. It's very important to have balance in life, both for happiness and for effectiveness. So in terms of the work-life balance, and since that has become increasingly important to physicians in training, medical students and residents as they think about their careers, how could we use literature and medicine to help them balance their lives better. I was just going to go back and say balance is not a numerical thing. It's a sense of doing several things that balance for you. And where the balance point is, is very, very hard to determine. It's a very individual thing. But I think the important thing is to feel that sense of control, that you're not out of control, that you do have a balance, that you do have something else that's very important. And how literature plays into that, literature, music, poetry, will vary from person to person. I don't think that literature is uniquely suited for physicians, although as physicians we hear a great number of stories from patients, illness narratives, that literature perhaps is more in tune with that than, let's say, music, but probably not poetry. So, Dr. Blazer, you've you've talked about this issue of when you are writing for a medical journal, you liken it to creative writing because you're telling a story. Could you expand on that thought a little bit, please? I can, uh, but using poetic license, let me go back to your last question and talk about the role of literature in medicine. Medicine is is very intense. Uh, You're dealing with people. They are in trouble, they're sick, they're dying, they have severe complications or an uncertain outlook, 
and and a physician is another human being. And, and how do you put this into perspective? How can you deal with all these difficult, sometimes insoluble issues and remain sane and remain useful and, and caring? Literature, both the reading of it and the writing of it, gives people that outlet, the outlet for reflection and for expression, which historically has helped many physicians and probably could help this new generation of physicians as well. I think the key word that you mentioned is reflection. The way the flow of information is today, it's continuous and it's sort of unidirectional. There's not a lot of opportunity unless you work at it to reflect, to go back over things that have happened so you can rethink them and, in a sense, bring those things in juxtaposition with other experiences and other pieces of knowledge that you've accumulated over the years. That whole issue of reflection, I think, is an endangered activity today. And do you think it's an endangered activity within medicine alone or within the entire society? I think the whole society. I mean, yeah. if you look at the number of hours that people spend on the, on the Internet, uh, you realize that a lot of time is occupied by these kind of activities instead of a quiet time where the, the mind just sort of idles. That idling time, I think, is important. Yeah, you know, the Internet is, is complex because a lot of the Internet is interactive, mm-hmm. and, and that part is good. And there, there are many different levels and types of interaction, and it, it's a way for people who are shy and people who are lonely to explore the world in some relative safety. So I'm, you know, the internet is bigger than all of us, and it really is a complex issue. But you ask, is this true? Is the lack of reflection true in other fields? And I think it is. It's the, the speeding up of life in really every dimension, whether it's business or education or, or medicine, is it has a cost. And there are both obvious costs and there are hidden costs. And one of them is just when people do things by rote, they don't individualize. They don't think about the individual problems that a person may have. And stepping back, even for a few moments, can allow someone to be a better physician because of that. I live just down First Avenue from Bellevue Hospital. I walk up the street to work. And almost every person who I can spot as being intern or a resident coming at me is on their cell phone or listening to an iPod. And I'm walking unencumbered by those things, just playing through thoughts in my mind. And I think there's a certain value to that, which you don't get if you're just constantly adding new pieces of information. Yeah, no, it's true. It's exciting how much you can learn, but there's no end to that. I think somewhere along the line, you have to integrate this information. You have to digest it. I think that's important, isn't it? There's a rabbi in our synagogue many years ago said, the special thing about observing the Sabbath was that before the laws that said you shall not work on, on, on the Sabbath, everyone was a slave, and slaves worked seven days a week. And part of having a Sabbath, a time that you let take off, is that it gives you a sense that you're not a slave. And I think being a slave is what your first question was about. What do people do who don't have time to read? I think they feel enslaved. And it's important to carve out a little piece of something that says, no, I'm not. So in terms of the someone just thinking about medicine, and, and because the pathway for becoming a physician is so competitive, and to some extent 
the types of activities that are rewarded to then be able to get accepted into medical school and then progress, you could argue, worked a little bit against right-brained people and people who think perhaps differently about the world than what we've traditionally thought of in terms of physicians. Is that a concern of yours? And if so, do you have any suggestions for perhaps things that medical schools or undergraduate, you know, that colleges could do differently? I think that medical school admissions committees have recognized that there are many different paths that lead to being a good physician. So I think that the days where everyone was a straight science major are pretty well gone. And we get a great variety of medical students starting medical school now. And I'm very much impressed with the fact that they've had very rich experiences outside of the straight sciences by the time I get to know them in the second or third year. When I went to medical school, I went straight through like an arrow. I didn't look up until I was somewhere, finished my my fellowship. Today, people take a year off. They travel. They do research. They have rich life experiences, even as they're going through medical school. And I think that is in recognition of the fact that there are so many different ways to practice medicine and so many different demands that it necessitates being able to accept very different kinds of people to accommodate to that. The time off is very useful. I would really recommend it for any young physician to interrupt their training and travel or go to a developing country and work as a physician and take your life and your work into another context. That's very broadening and, again, in ways that are very straightforward and others that are much more profound and life-changing. As Jerry was talking, I was thinking that when we were becoming young doctors, to many, uh, medicine was a calling. And I think both Jerry and I are, are lucky that both of us still see it that way. That's not true for everyone. And, and so that's why I say we're lucky. And I, I think our job is, as educators is to try to figure out ways that we can continue that spirit and we can encourage uh, those aspects so that people really feel passionate about the gift they have, which is to help people, and uh, and not despondent over the regulations and the reimbursements and the many of the other annoyances of modern life, because they've always been there. And if you let it, it will swallow you up. But somehow, if, if you can flip that switch, and that's the big question, then medicine is extremely rewarding career. That bears a lot on the original question of this whole uh, discussion, and that is the role of of literature, and I think some of the role models are no longer with us, but they're people who have written and the legacy they have left behind uh, serves as role models for uh, for some of our students. There are books that I treasure, which I think have given me a kind of image of the kind of physician I want to be or the kind of things I have to deal with and think about. So I think that even if in this busy day there are role models, and some of them are in in, in life and on the wards, and others could be picked up and read, listened to, thought about. So what are some of those those treasured texts? I didn't read much when I was younger, so a lot of my reading is a little more current. One of the most powerful books I've ever read was uh, by William Maxwell, who's one of America's great lesser-known giants. Uh, his book, They Came Like Swallows, describes his, his mother's death during the 1918 uh, flu pandemic. And it's a magnificent book. He's a magnificent writer. But the whole image of the impact of her death and the way it affected his life 
I think was a kind of object lesson for me. I felt the same sort of thing with Jane Beige's book, A Death in the Family. There are lots of other books, but those two came to my mind uh, as soon as I started thinking about this. Dr. Blazer, how about for you? And for me, uh, there's one thing that comes overwhelmingly to mind that was both enjoyable and I come back to again and again, and that's uh, William Carlos Williams' Patterson stories. Mm -hmm. About his work as a general doctor in the slums and tenements of uh, Patterson, uh, working with mostly immigrant families, making house calls. It's almost entirely about his house calls. And it's beautiful literature, and it is so instructive for doctors. I really recommend that to everyone. There's a contemporary equivalent of that, I think, in some of the stories that Michael Lacombe writes about practicing medicine in Maine. Yeah, and and you know the the, the pieces in the uh, in the new uh, in the Annals of Internal Medicine and in JAMA on doctoring, yeah. a piece yeah. of my mind. These little essays are gems. They there's a, you talk about that extra ten minutes a day to right. read something. There are so many doctors who are writing and trying to get their work published. It's really the, the cream of the crop, and uh, I strongly recommend it. Of course. We both recommend the Bellevue Literary Review. Yeah, I was hoping you'd say that. Which we're, we're, we're very prejudiced in favor of. Only comes out twice a year, but that is filled with stories, essays, poems, and also what reminded me is that it's very, it's very difficult to get published in the BLR because there, there's so many wonderful pieces of work chasing very few pages. So it's, each issue is quite rich. I recently pointed out to someone that it's easier to get NIH funding than it is to get published in, in most literary journals, and I would assume the Bellevue Literary Review is similar. We think it's easier to get into the New England Journal than into the BLR. So, so, so you've described the journal as, as a journal of humanity and the human experience. Could one of you elaborate on that description? So humanity and the human condition, uh, this is this is what doctors are, are about. That That's our goal, is to improve that. If not to cure, then to alleviate suffering. And so we're interested in the literature that touches on all aspects of the health experience, from birth to death, and the interactions. And fortunately, there are so many wonderful observers and people with great insights who can tell a story. And that's all the components. In addition to physicians and other providers, do you have patients who submit pieces for publication? Most of what is submitted is written by patients or their families. Very few pieces are actually submitted by physicians. So mostly it's we're seeing illness through the eye of the patient and their immediate family. That, I think, adds a lot to the richness of, of the BLR. It's not just doctors writing about what they've seen or what they've thought. The chance for patients to describe illness is probably very beneficial for them, too. It's it's good to be able to write about something and to have it acknowledged. That's a very important thing. And they have insights that are great for physicians to read about. So we, we think, God, did someone say that? Did somebody do that? And to see tremendous impact it can have on somebody's life. Dr. Blazer, you'd mentioned earlier the challenge of helping physicians in training embrace the calling, for lack of a a better way of putting it. And I'm wondering, I'm just sort of struck that if you had a really powerful poem from a patient about his or her experience, 
is there a way to use that as, as an educational tool, either with a medical student or a resident or a fellow? Our editor-in-chief, Danielle Offrey, often brings a poem to rounds and discusses it with her team or, or has the team bring in poems to discuss. She's used that as a way of, uh, of bridging that. Are there other techniques where you've perhaps asked students or residents or fellows to, to write either journals or um, perhaps collaboratively talk about a writing assignment? About 10 years ago, uh, we started what I'll call the essay project, where during the third year of medical school, during the required clerkship in internal medicine, uh, we now require every medical student to write an essay about a patient. And uh, when we initially constructed it, the goal was to get to get students to integrate, to think coherently about the, the complexity of a patient, about pathophysiology or pharmacology or or the sociology or the ethics uh, of the case. Uh, but once we began doing this, what became clear is that most of the essays were about the very personal interaction of the student and the patient maybe the first time a student had contact with somebody who was going to die, or when the student became the closest friend of uh, of a patient in the hospital, or when the student witnessed terrible fights between members of the family of a patient, or the terrible sadness of an incurable diagnosis or the elation of a cure. Now, more than 1,500 essays later, these are very moving collectively. They're a wonderful testament to how students can express their feelings given the chance. The first piece that we accepted for the first issue of the BLR was a poem by one of our first-year students who described coming to recognize that the young woman that she had examined could, under slightly different circumstances, be herself. We had accepted that for publication. The first issue wasn't out yet. The New York Times picked up the story about the BLR and asked if we had an example of something that we would publish. And since this was the only thing we had accepted, we submitted that to them, and they published it in the New York Times. ASN's current president, Sharon Anderson, is an avid reader, and, and she's actually introduced me to Scandinavian crime fiction, which is really it's interesting to think about the differences from the U.S. and the, the stereotypical protagonist in U.S. mysteries or thrillers versus mm -hmm. Scandinavia. A couple examples. I mean, right now, Stieg Larsson's Millennium mm -hmm. Trilogy is mm -hmm. a bestseller, and there's sort of a couple of elements of it. Just the fact that there's such a link back to the country's history, particularly related to World War II, and that's a similar trend, say, in Joe Nespo's books from Norway, and if you contrast that with the U.S., I mean, one of the things that I've noticed is that at least U.S. fiction writers are very city-specific. So you'd mentioned the 1918 flu, and that made me think of Dennis Lehane's The Given Day, which, which takes place then and uses the flu, but also uses baseball and kind of toggles between them. And so I'm just wondering if mystery fiction is anchored in place, what's medical literature anchored in? Person. Uh, you know, one can think of person, place, and time, and everything is anchored in all three. But with respect to your question, what leaps out is person, is the unique characteristics of that individual, whether it's the patient or the caregiver or being the relative or being the nurse. That's the central feature to me. Loss and hope, I think, are the central things that medical literature in this country uh, seem to hinge on, or literature in general. It's a powerful theme. There are more and more memoirs 
And these memoirs are filled with stories. Dr. Lohenstein, yeah. Stan Plumley recently published Cancer, which is an extraordinary poem, and I'd like to read the beginning and, and get your reaction. Cancer. Mine, I know, started at a distance, 520 light years away, and fell as stardust into my sleeping mouth yesterday at birth, or that time when I was 10, lying on my back looking up at the cluster called the beehive, or by its other name in the constellation Cancer, the crab, able to move its nebulae projections backward and forward, side to side, in the tumor Hippocrates described as carcinoma from Carcinos, the analog, in order to show what being cancer looks like. I found this a very interesting poem and, and a challenge, in a sense, to um, get beyond the normal way that, or even the sophisticated way that we think about cancer today in terms of genetic mutations and, and specific forms of cancer in different patients, uh, this really gives it a much larger metaphorical connection. I, I thought it was a powerful poem. We all carry around our favorite poems. I do. I didn't, I guess, all my life, but I find now that there are whole poems and snatches of poems that carry me through the day or through the week. I guess one of my favorites is Stanley Kunitz. He wrote a lot, and he won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, but he has one poem called The Layers, which uh, my wife introduced me to. She's a real poetry reader. But this poem is so powerful that I adopted it. I read it often and hear about it. And then I've come to find, of course, that everyone I turn to has read it and loves it. He starts off, I've walked through many lives, some of them my own. I am not who I was, though some principle of being abides from which I struggle not to stray. It's, I won't read the whole thing, but the end, he says, In my darkest night, when the moon was covered, I roamed through the wreckage of nimbus-clouded voice directed me, Live in the layers, not on the litter. Though I lack the art to decipher it, no doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. I think he wrote that when he was somewhere between 90 and 100, and he died in his 100th year. And that poem runs right through me when I see people getting older and they worry and and they question and I think a lot about how life ends, how one handles those last years. Kunis was amazing, courageous, poetic, beautiful man. I, 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 and I didn't know um, the poem by uh, Plumley. It's a very good poem and I actually went and looked up some of his other poetry because he had sent me his uh, this poem. And he's a very good poet. I've just begun to discover poetry at this late stage of my life. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.